0: But it's Matthew chapter 8. Lord Jesus Christ has just engaged in 5, 6, and 7 in the, um, in the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's acting like a new Moses. He's gone up the mountain like Moses has and he's handed down the, the, the law of the kingdom to the multitudes. And then it, the, the, the narrative continues in chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with fever. He touched her. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases.
1: There's been a strange uh, cultural phenomena going on in the last decade that I'm not really interested in. But I am this morning for purpose of an illustration. There are um, some people on the screen, and I recognise a few of them. I had to do some research to find out who some others were. So we've got Spider-Man of old. We've got Superman of old. We've got uh, this strapping chap, top right, called the Hulk. And um, we've got someone here, bottom left-hand corner. Does anyone know who that is? It's... wow. interesting. The storm, there's been a battle in the last decade of uh, Marvel versus DC and who can make the most billion dollars? Who can make it quickest? There's been the Avengers, there's been uh, the superheroes of old versus the superheroes of new and it's something quite remarkable culturally that uh, it has created so much income for the filmmakers and film distributors in the last decade. There's something uh, that reveals culturally I think about our want for escapism, but also maybe there is a dream for power in each one of our hearts that uh, it connects in some way when we see these remarkable acts. I I like the ones where people that I can relate to in a kind of, so I'm more of a Superman person, not because of Lycra um, and being a mammal of old, but that's a middle-aged man in Lycra if you needed that explaining. But I I struggle with the newer ones. I I, I struggle that there may be a, a hulk in my person underneath my keg, rather than a six-pack. But I'm more of an old-school kind of person who who likes the power of the man in Lycra. The Lord Jesus has been revealed to us as teacher by Matthew. It's one of a block. uh, The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous block of teaching, I think, in the whole of literature. Not just Christian literature, but the whole of literature. But Matthew doesn't just want to reveal Jesus as a teacher. He also wants to reveal him as saviour. And so the whole book of Matthew is about Jesus as teacher and saviour. But Jesus is not just a teacher with authority. We saw that at the end of last week. He's also a man with great power because he's the Son of Man, he's the divine man. When you look at Jesus and when you hear his teaching, when you see his activity and his actions, he is a man with power under control. And we get a glimpse into the person of the Lord Jesus, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, as he descends from this mountain, this Moses-like teaching experience, a Sermon on the Mount, and straight away in verses 1 to 4, there's a miraculous supernatural activity going on where Jesus heals a man almost in four sentences, just like a throwaway, or by the way, he healed someone who had leprosy before Matthew spends most of his time, verses 5 to 13, about this interaction with the Lord Jesus and the faith shown by a centurion. And it's so rare and so phenomenal that even the Lord Jesus is astonished, sentence 10. And when you see the power of Jesus in these verses and also in chapters 8 and 9 and beyond, there is some deep connection between what we read here that Jesus did 2,000 years ago and the fictional stuff that we can go and enjoy at the cinema. It doesn't matter if you're, actually, I prefer Merlin. I prefer my uh, supernatural power to be a bit older in antiquity. I'm a Merlin kind of lady or a kind of guy. Well, actually, no, I, I prefer Gandalf. Well, it doesn't matter whether you're uh, uh, someone who likes superheroes from antiquity or if you like them from the pages of comic books. When we look at the actions of Jesus and the, uh, the actions of our superhero friends, they're completely different. One happened in history. One is created in the minds of a man or a woman. One is uh, self-centered, really. One is completely other-centered. And I want to look at the, uh, the miracles of the Lord Jesus in chapter 8, but also dipping into chapter 9 as well, to say, what, well, how do they compare and contrast? What, what does the authority of Jesus reveal, not in his teaching, 5, 6, and 7, but in his actions, in his power, 8 and 9? What does it show about his person, who he is? Three Ps, excuse me. Proof, pointer, and pattern. They're a proof for who he is. They're a pointer to what he's about. They're a deep pattern of how he comes to save us. Let's look at, firstly, the miracles of Jesus. They are a proof of who he is, a proof of who he is. Look at sentence 17 that we read, the last sentence. The actions of Jesus in healing, verses 1 to 4, this uh, leprous person and then doing this remarkable miracle with, with someone he didn't even see face to face. He just said a word and it happened. It all comes to bear on sentence 17. The actions of Jesus are about fulfillment from promises that were made, from the, the quills and lips of prophets in the Old Testament that God would send someone to sort out the mess. And that's made reference to in sentence 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 750, 800 years before Jesus walked the earth, someone wrote down, a man called Isaiah. God spoke into his heart and mind by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote it down with his quill. He typed it on his word processor, so to speak, that one would come, God would send a king, the Messiah, and he would put everything wrong, right. And that's what happens with the proof of who Jesus is, not through his teaching, but now through his actions. Every miracle that Jesus does is a sign displaying his greatness, a display of his glory and power. And so it's interesting, in sentence 9, this uh, interaction with the centurion in Jesus. We had it read to us slowly to meet the record, but also accurately and helpfully with a northern accent. Here is a man, a centurion, who says, I'm a man under authority. I don't need you to come. Sentence 8, just say the word, And there's this wonderful wonderful little picture of a man who has a sphere of authority, a centurion, who sees over a bunch of men, hardened men. And when he says a word, it happens, just like every parent's dream. You say something and it happens with immediate effect. No sweat off his brow. The centurion just says it and it happens. There's a few parents looking at their teenage children next to them. But here is Jesus, and the centurion sees, hang on, Jesus does not have a limited sphere of authority. You just say the word. You don't even need to come. And it's Matthew again doing a a lesser to the greater example. Here's a centurion. He has limited authority over a bunch of men. What he says happens. But this centurion can see when it comes to Jesus, his sphere of authority is over the whole world. You don't even need to come. I have authority, you have authority. So much greater than mine. Just say the word. See, Jesus doesn't need to come and set out his stall and put on his black top hat with a a stick and say, Abracadabra. And then it happens. Jesus doesn't need to do that because he's not a magician. He's the Messiah. And he says the word from afar. And it happens. I have authority, you have even greater authority. So every miracle that we read of points to who Jesus is. It's proof of his identity. Now, we need a sidebar at this point because I recognize that there are many people in the room who would think, actually, when you read this, this is make-believe. You can put this with Marvel and DC with Merlin because it's made-up stuff. So we want to address that 50, 60 years ago. Uh, if you were around at that time, you would remember, or if you have read the history books, 50, 60 years ago, many people would have huge concerns with the miracles of Jesus. They, they sought to be disproved, and, they, and there was even some within the church who would say, this did not happen. And you would think with the modernization, with secularization, with uh, modernity and all the uh, post-enlightenment thinking that's after World War II, where science rules and reigns, that there's no place in one society for the miraculous. You may think that. I came across an interesting study. Just got a screen grab here from uh, the BBC. Everything they say can be trusted. That said a bit tongue-in-cheek. But uh, they did a survey a year ago of uh, just 2,000 adults. 2,000 adults were interviewed, and this is the result of their survey. You can look it up. 62% of British adults believe some form of miracle is possible today. Interesting. Here's what's fascinating. Nearly three-quarters of the age group surveyed 18 to 24 believe some form of miracle is possible today, more than any other age group. 43% of people say they prayed for a miracle. It's worth looking at. You may be here, you may be a Christian, and you may have this position, you say, I believe in God, but miracles can't happen. If that's you this morning that's uh, worth thinking about, that if you believe in God who is all-powerful, the God of the Bible, then is that position tenable? To say that I believe in a God who created the world, who rescued the world through the death of his son. And if you believe in the God of the Bible and say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in miracles, are those two positions tenable? Are they credible? Because surely, if the God of the Bible is as great as he's been revealed to be, then a miracle would be just a small thing for him to do. But secondarily, if uh, you say, okay, well, I don't believe in God, and therefore I don't believe miracles can happen. Well, I understand that. That's kind of more logical, actually. I don't believe in God, and therefore I believe that miracles can't happen. But actually to hold that point is a definitive statement. That is a belief statement that you're positing, you're saying, I look into the world, and I don't think God exists, and I don't think miracles can happen. Therefore, miracles don't happen anymore. That, that is a huge leap of faith to say that you can definitively postulate and say that miracles cannot happen. And you could argue that that position has more faith than a Christian who says that God exists, and therefore, because God exists, miracles can happen. Let me suggest to you, friends, that as we look at this passage, it's completely reasonable and rational to say that God exists and miracles happen. Because Matthew paints for us, and Mark and Luke and John, they paint for us a portrait of of Jesus, where miracles are just part of the real evidence that exists for this person in history. I want you to look at the evidence and not be so definitive to say that God doesn't exist and miracles can't happen. What do I mean? Here's a question I've been wrestling with this week. Sentence 10. How can, what did happen in the centurion's life so that he could come to Jesus with a question and say, help, just say the word, What did the centurion get struck by? What did he know of Jesus so that this was a rational and a reasonable thing to do? I think he'd been looking at the totality of his life. He'd been thinking about what he's heard about this person, the claims of his deity, some of his teaching perhaps from the Sermon on the Mount. He's been looking at the whole of Jesus' life, not in part, but in whole. And he's come to the conclusion that my only source of help, my only resource is not to deal with my own authority. I need someone who has the whole of creation under his authority. I need to go to him. How could all this come together in one person? There a Christian minister of some decades ago called Dick Lucas. Uh, someone who didn't believe in God, the God of the Bible, came to him and said, I would believe in God if you could give me a watertight argument for his existence. If you could just put everything out for me, then I'd believe in God. Just need a rational argument. And Dick Lucas said... The thing is, friend, God does not give us a rational argument. He gives us a rational, watertight person. No watertight argument. He gives us a watertight person for whom there is nothing can be said against his existence. Don't let a dogmatic leap of faith, don't believe in God, therefore there are no miracles, don't let that stop you. Look at the entirety of his person as we journey through. The miracles are there to prove his existence. They're there to prove his existence. But secondarily, Jesus' miracles don't just prove his existence. They, they, they point like a big foam hand, like a laser pointer. They point to his and prove his existence, but they, they point in two directions as we look at them, of where Jesus wants to take the world. What is God up to? In miracles, they... They prove his existence, but they point where God wants to take the world. Let's contrast again. You could say Superman. Superman, when he was a teenager, if you remember the scene, the old one, the proper film with Christopher Reeve. There are no other Superman films, I posit to you. Do you remember the bit when he was a teenager and and he was coming to terms with the power that he had and people were playing American football and he threw a ball and it went past the post, it just kept going past the field and it just went into sort of space. And uh, then he was trying to woo Lois Lane and uh, he grabbed hold of her and he went not just up into the air, then he just went up into, went further and further to show off. He showed off his strength, his speed, his might, his x-ray vision. You don't believe I'm Superman, I'm going to show you. And he kind of burned off the top of a mountain with his x-ray vision, that kind of stuff. Jesus never does that with his power because they don't, they're not, it's not self-centered power. Jesus, when he shows his power, it's not a naked display of his might. Look at me. They very rarely point to himself at all. The miracles of Jesus always have to do with alleviating human suffering. Always. Just flick with chapter 8 and chapter 9 with me. Here is Jesus who heals a man from leprosy, chapter 8. Here is Jesus, who with a word of authority and power, cures a man. Here is Jesus, who, verse 16, when evening came of chapter 8, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, is that word again, and he healed all the sick. Don't you love the word all? Here is Jesus, who by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, heals two demon-possessed men. No problem. Here is Jesus who heals a paralytic. Here is Jesus who heals not just a sick woman, who's had terrible hemorrhaging of blood, loss of blood that's been so debilitating all her life. But here is Jesus who raises a dead girl and says, there's nothing but sleep to me. Here is Jesus who has authority over the wind and the waves. Nothing that Jesus does brings him glory to the degree that it's a proof of his divinity, as if that is needed. It's pointing somewhere. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He makes the mute speak. He raises the dead as if it's just from sleep. It's not a naked display of power saying, look at my strength, look at me. Aren't I great? He's dealing and alleviating human suffering and pain. He's reversing the fall at every step. Jesus' activity, prove who he is, but they point in two directions. What do I mean? They point back. This Victorian hand drawing caught my eye. The activity and actions of Jesus point back. What do I mean? They're pointing back to the way God made the world in the beginning, before it became sin stained and ruined. When he heals the paralyzed man, when he raises the dead, he's pointing back to a world where there was no suffering, when there was no death, when there was no pain. When he seals the storm, he's pointing back to a time when nature was our friend, not an enemy. We didn't need to fear tornadoes. We didn't need to be scared with a tsunami hitting or a storm on Thursday. Nature was our friend. And so Jesus, far be it, hear me carefully, far be it for doing supernatural things. Jesus actually, Jesus actually in his activity, is returning things to the, fact, the way they naturally were. Jesus is doing supernatural things, extraordinary things, but actually... He's returning to creation and nature to the way things were. He's pointing back to the way the world was before sin damaged everything. He's pointing back to the reality of our true king ruling the world with peace and with justice before everything fell apart. That means uh, when you come to understand Jesus' miracles, they're not suspension of natural laws. They're returning to natural law. They're pointing backwards to the way the world was. They're pointing forward to the way the world will be. What do I mean? Verse 11, sentence 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus, again, is quoting from the Old Testament. He's saying, a day is coming, Psalm 96, when trees will be clapping their hands, when mountains will be bowing down before the glory of the Lord. He's pointing forward. Uh, forward to the uh, pages of Revelation, that says King Jesus will return, and everything wrong will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. Every storm will cease. There'll be no more chaos or disorder. No more crime. Imagine that. No more war in any faraway country, or even at home. No more death. That's not make believe. It will happen. No more tears. The actions of Jesus point back to the way the world was before sin came in. The natural, God-centered, God-adoring way He points forward to the way it will be. And when we grasp that foretaste of the past and of the future, of the first creation and the new creation, it gives us a radical new agenda. What do I mean? We need to have as much dissatisfaction with the world, with the way things are, that Jesus did. And so we get into the messiness of people's lives. Jesus gives us a radical new agenda. Look at what Jesus says to the centurion. What what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go and heal him? No, just say the word. Just say the word, Jesus. Friends, the greatest thing you can do for absolutely anybody is not to heal them. It's not to heal them. It's to pray that God would give them the gift of faith. It's the greatest thing anybody can ever receive so that they're safe for eternity. Our greatest need is not that suffering will be alleviated. It's that our relationship with our maker is restored through Jesus Christ. Suffering is part of the outflow of our rebellion against our maker. And so Jesus zooms in on the centurion and he is, verse 10, astonished at faith of someone outside of Israel who has deep confidence in the God of the Bible to heal his servant. The most important thing is not to make the world a better place. It's not to listen to St. Greta with all the merits of what she says and all the concerns. It's to be restored to our maker through faith in his son. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. As important and as central And as primary as salvation is, Jesus sometimes just cures people as an overflow of his love. It's striking, verse 16 to 17. Just imagine how boring it was to be the first century NHS worker when Jesus was alive. There was nothing to do. And yet sometimes out of an overflow of his love, Jesus gets involved in community life and he heals people. And so there are the two priorities that we need to always hold together The priority of seeing restoration with our maker through faith in King Jesus is our primary need. It's the greatest need we have for our friends as we speak to them and say, have you investigated the claims of Jesus? Please don't dismiss it. Have you heard who Jesus was? Can I read the Bible with you? It's the greatest need our friends have. But on the other side of the coin, we also need to be concerned with alleviating need and pain and tears. We need to help not because people are targets, but because Jesus did it. It's faith and deed. It's works of goodness and kindness as an overflow of our relationship with Jesus, helping our neighbours just because it's a good thing to do. It's compassionate. So Jesus gives us this radical agenda because of pointing backwards and pointing forwards as well. Thirdly, finally, quickly, Jesus' miracles don't just prove who he is. They don't just point forwards and backwards. Jesus' miracles are a deep pattern of how he comes to save us. A deep pattern, It's the third P, of how he came to save us. These are fictional figures from Marvel, from DC. Very rarely do they alleviate suffering. More often than not, it's, uh, it's about showing strength and might and power. But look at, uh, look at this third thing that Jesus' miraculous power reveals to us of who he is. In Matthew uh, chapter 4, there are these, uh, there's an account how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And there's a the temptation that Satan places before Jesus to say, why don't you show your power by making these stones into bread? Just show off. Why don't you throw yourself off from this high point, and the angels will come and rescue you. I want you to be a Superman-esque type hero. Throw yourself off this pinnacle, this cliff. I want you to be invincible. I want you to be invulnerable. I want you to show how great you are just at my beck and call. And Jesus said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word. And every time he goes back and refutes Satan's temptation with the Bible. Jesus' power does not make him invulnerable. It makes him vulnerable. Jesus' power never makes him invulnerable. It's not a force field around him. Jesus willingly becomes weak. It's strength in weakness. It's there in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus interacts with this poor woman, beginning in verse 18, who's bled all her life. And from the other Gospels we can get a fuller picture of what happened. And Jesus, as this poor lady touches him, says, Who touched me? He feels the power go out from him. There's no force field around Jesus. Power has gone out from me. In other words, his strength went to her. Her weakness. Her weakness came to him. It's there in John chapter 11 as well when Jesus raises Lazarus with a word. He names him. If he didn't name him, everyone would come back from the dead at the same point. Jesus's power does not just make him vulnerable. It also It also makes him hated by those who are against him. Now we have to kill him. If we don't kill him, our power is going to be dissipated. So do you see, Jesus' power and his very life, his teaching, does not make him invulnerable. It makes him more vulnerable, more spearable, more killable, more more nailable. Because in our passage, verse 17, it tells us why. All these are Actions from Jesus of of healing, uh, of saving and rescuing the centurion's uh, servant, of healing many people, of driving out demons. What's the point? Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Friends, if Jesus just came to bring judgment, we will be destroyed. Because sin is inside of my heart and yours too. The older you get, the more honest you are. But if the Lord Jesus came to bring judgment, we would be destroyed. We'd be wiped out. Because sin is in our hearts. Jesus didn't come just to deal with disease and brokenness. That's helpful to think of it that way. But he came to deal with our sin. Our active rebellion against God. It's not a subtle thing. A deliberate continuation of saying, I want to be in charge, not you. I know better than you do. Not your way my way, but on the cross he bore, he took up all the suffering and all the shame and all the sin throughout all of history and he took it upon himself. He picked it up, he bore it. He didn't come to uh, get rid of sin and suffering. He came to carry it, verse 17. He bore our sin and our suffering and our shame. And when you see that strength comes through weakness, Strength coming from God alone, admitting that we need a saviour, admitting that we can't do life by ourselves. That's where power comes from, by becoming weak. By saying, I need you. I need you every hour, as the old hymn says. I need a saviour, I need forgiveness. I don't just need help, I need rescuing. When you see that, then you start to see that that's the pattern that Jesus laid down. Strength comes through weakness. Weakness through giving your money away, Weakness through giving your time away. Weakness through giving your future away. Losing it all so that you might gain a future. As a historian, very helpful, called Rodney Stark. He wrote a book about the rise of Christianity, looking at the first few centuries of the Christian church and what happened when. He said when there was uh, plagues going through Rome in about uh, AD 169 and, and after that. Plagues were going through uh, the great cities of the Greco-Roman world. The suffering was so great that uh, people were leaving their loved ones. They were ignoring them. People just stopped taking care of those in their sphere of influence and they headed for the hills. They were afraid, apart from the Christians. And Rodney Stark quotes uh, two people, two eyewitnesses. He says, The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. The people became afraid to visit anyone. And as a result, thousands of people died. No one looked after them. There were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of attention. There were piles of bodies, half-dead creatures staggering around the streets. It was a nightmare. But that's not how the Christians acted, says Rodney Stark. Here's what happened. Most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and only thinking of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their very need, ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbours and cheerfully accepted their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner and a number of elders, many in nursing and caring for others. Their death to themselves, and died in their stead now where do you think they got that idea from he took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases let's pray